The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not reflect that of WVFS Tallahassee. From the highest point on Florida State's campus and the hottest room in Seminole Sports, this is Tomahawk Talk. We are live on 89.7 FM here in Tallahassee and streaming online at wvfs.fsu.edu. I'm your host, Gary Putnick, and wow, what a home opener for Florida State football. The Knolls fall flat in a 16-13 loss to the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, which is good for their fourth straight home opening or season opening loss. Uh, that is four. You heard me right. And that is also the second time in a row that the Seminoles have lost to the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets since the 2008 and 2009 season when Bobby Bowden was still the head coach. But we have a lot to get to this week or for about this past week in sports in Florida State Athletics. So let's get to that right away. I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Austin Reynolds. Austin, how did it feel to be back in Doak this weekend? All things considered, it felt pretty good. Uh, it was very odd to, uh, on the walk to Doak, not see any tailgaters, not hear any music. It was a very empty atmosphere, and I don't know how long that's going to persist, if tailgating will be allowed for the next home game or not, but definitely an odd atmosphere there. And obviously the game did not end how Florida State fans wanted it to, but even just being at Doak, seeing football be played, it was a great experience for the first time in a few months. Yeah, and to put it in perspective, there was about 17,538 fans. I believe that's the exact number that we were given by the university. And it felt pretty empty. I mean, like, granted, there's still a lot of people that left after the rain delay because there was a rain delay about 30 minutes into the football game. But it got pretty quiet pretty quick. And it also got a bit loud from the fans, too, especially on some calls. But we'll get to that. But just like last week's show, we had two panelists calling in. And this week, for the first half, we're going to have V89 veteran Anthony Fernandez. Uh, Anthony, you mentioned us before. You mentioned us a little bit before the show today that uh, last Saturday for the FSU Georgia Tech game, you worked as a graphics operator for the Jumbotrons at Doak. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how it was for your first game. Yeah, Gary, it was really good to be back at Doak Campbell Stadium. Um, the control room that we have for the video board show is in the stadium, um, so it was just good to be back there. Um, and yeah, basically. Uh, what my job was, was uh, if you were there before the game, um, when we did the field pass, uh, just going through all the players, uh, all the different highlights that each player has, uh, just kind of putting those graphics out on the Jumbotron. So if you're, if you're new to Florida State football or if you just wanted a refresher kind of of what these players have been up to for the 2019 season and what, uh, what to look forward to in the 2020 season, um, those graphics hopefully provided some, some good insight for the team. But, no, it was, it was a really good experience. I'm looking forward to working – um, the, the next football game in the future. And I'm glad to have Florida State sports back, and I'm especially glad to be talking about FSU football on the show here today. And we're glad to have you back. I mean, you guys did a great job with the Jumbotron this weekend. Austin, I certainly appreciate it. I'm sure the rest of the fans in the stadium did as well. looked phenomenal. But uh, later on in the show, we're going to have two rookies. Well, we have two rookies helping us with the show this week. V89 rookie Jacob Varga is going to be on as a panelist for the second half of the show. And on Twitter, we have another rook. Belle Do- uh, Duggerty, and she's going to be on Twitter at Tomahawk under- or Talk underscore Tomahawk. Give her and the Twitter a follow and keep up with tonight's show. That way she's going to have some good polls coming your way and some other funny stuff. So be- that's always a good follow. But let's start off with the thing everyone wants to talk about, the thing that is just eating up this town right now. Do we really want to talk about it? Well, <laughs> do we want to have a radio show tonight? I mean, yeah, but like... It, it's, it's we ca- we, we need one to have the it. other. Yeah. So let's let's just get to it. Let's just rip the Band-Aid off right now. Georgia Tech came into Doak Campbell Stadium this weekend and beat the Seminoles in Mike Norvell's first game as head coach of FSU. The, the Yellow Jackets win 16-13 to in what I'd maybe call an embarrassing loss for Florida State, but we can get to that in a little bit. We can talk, we can discuss. That's what this show is for. But let me get you a little bit of a preview or a little uh, background on how what happened in this game in case you did not watch. So the Knowles came out of the gates hot with an Asante Samuel pick on uh, what seemed to be a pretty solid drive by Georgia Tech. They were marching down the field. Asante Samuels comes up or Asante Samuel Jr. comes up with a big interception. Then they uh, would then the FSU offense backed it up with all that talk and then they moved, pushed down the field, scored. Pretty quickly. I think it only took him about two minutes to uh, go about 50 yards or so. And then the rain delay happened. The dreaded rain delay that pushed it, I think, about an hour 
after it's delay after the time that we were supposed to really be on pace for that that i think killed a lot of momentum but like i said we'll talk about that later and then um we can keep going on when both teams came back out fsu came out and they forced a georgia tech uh punt they came back down with a field goal of their own and then the game was pretty much over offensively for fsu they did not score a point after that field goal after they came back, or no, sorry, they scored only one more field goal. Right, right. Whoops. And then from that point on, the Knowles will only accumulate three points on 137 yards of total offense, and then they would turn the ball over three times. So Georgia Tech managed to reclaim, uh, remain calm, and move the ball downfield off pretty often. And then um, they ended up taking the game 16 to 13. So, I mean, I don't know how else to really say it, but FSU just didn't look great. Austin? Yeah, I mean, they didn't look great. They didn't really look good even I mean, outside of that first <laughs> yeah, drive, that, which, yeah. I mean, the, the first drive is scripted. Like, you usually know what you're going to do coming into the game. So that gave a lot of people hope, seeing that Florida State was able to execute on its first drive. But after that, I mean, blocked punts and blocked, or not blocked punts, but blocked kicks aside, like, Florida State just did not look inspiring whatsoever. Anthony, did you? what were your initial thoughts on how this game ended up? Um, it's, it was just kind of rough to watch. I mean, the defense kind of held us in the game as, as much as possible. They held the Knowles in the game as much as possible. But at the end of the day, uh, football is a team sport. You got to be good on offense and defense. And 16 points is a very uh, doable game for an offense to come back from. Um, but the fact that FSU couldn't come back in this game, it's a little concerning. Um, we, we talked a little bit about, uh, first game jitters before before the we got we hopped on tomahawk talk and I don't know if first game jitters is, is an excuse um, for this but it very well could be for for some of the newcomers. I think for one guy especially first game jitters are not a good excuse and we'll start with it right here. James Blackman. Yeah. I do not think first game jitters are a good excuse for him because this is year four now and he has still two more years of eligibility with the whole NCAA rules and everything. So. He could be starting well after we're gone from Florida State. So what were – is this game James Blackman's fault offensively, or are you putting the blame on Norvell or anything else with the offense? I would not put it squarely on Blackman's shoulders. I mean, he does have to be better. I said it on Twitter while the game was going on. It felt like for every one good play that he had, like throwing it maybe 20, 25 yards down the field, good completion there, there were two heads that – two plays, rather, that I just can't wrap my head around like throwing bad interceptions while on the run, uh, bad throws under pressure. It's it's just hard to wrap my head around. Like, I, I, can't, I can't use the first game jitters excuse, but obviously not all of it is his fault, as I was saying before. Uh, there were a couple key drops from receivers, namely uh, Keyshawn Helton, or uh, Warren Thompson, rather, mm-hmm. um, and T- Tamarion Terry. Uh, the one bomb to Terry sticks out as the most egregious, I would say, because that was pretty much a, a walk-in touchdown if he had uh, caught the ball there, but definitely not squarely on Blackman's shoulders. So he does have to be, be better for sure. Austin. Or sorry, oh, not Austin. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Anthony, Austin, no, we got too many, A's, too many A's um, on the show. Yeah. yeah but uh, Just bouncing off of what Austin was saying. Um, when a quarterback like James Blackman is struggling as much as he did on Saturday and as much as he kind of has been struggling throughout his career here at, uh, at Florida state university, um, the off- the rest of the offense has to pick him up when he ha- when he has these- his good moments. Tomorrow and Terry, he has the FSU record for the most 70 plus yard touchdown catches, and he had another opportunity to have a big play that would have uh, had a lot of momentum for the FSU offense, and he dropped the that like Austin said, it dropped a long bomb. So um, when you ha- when you're struggling like that, uh, like a quarterback like Blackman, you got to pick him up, and it just didn't happen for the FSU offense. It was, it was a, I mean, honestly, it was a struggle to watch the FSU offense after that first touchdown they yeah. put up. It obviously was reminiscent of the Boise State game from last season where Florida State got up big. Granted, it was a lot more points were scored in that first half than there were pretty much in this whole game altogether on this past Saturday. But everyone was so up about the offense once they scored. It's a different team. It's a new era. It's, we're tur- this team is turning the page. And then they just fell flat right back to where they were. And it begs the question, is this is this problem fall on the coaches or is this the players? Because 
This is now three different coaches in the past four years. And nothing really seems to be changing. I still think it's way too early to be answering that question because obviously, as we have mentioned tonight, there were a lot of miscues on the players, a lot of places where they could and should have stepped up. But, I mean, I, I can't really go comparing the the effectiveness of Mike Norvell's coaching to coaching staffs of the past. Um, the players obviously are, let's, let's face it, they're not up to snuff for what FSU's legacy would command. Uh, that's that's just the matter of fact, the fact of the matter, rather. Um, I mean, there's not a lot that any coach can do with a, a roster of this caliber, um, but I, I would not go making comparisons to past coaching staffs quite yet. I, w- I would wait at least until like halfway through the season. Anthony? Um, I I would put the players in, into a little bit of question. Um, we uh, Florida State was on a decline um, at the end of Jimbo Fisher's tenure with the team um, with Willie Taggart. Um, they were they also weren't up to par with the rest of the ACC, and it could be early to t- to tell for this season under under Coach Mike Norvell. But it's it's more of the same that that we're all seeing here um, for the Florida State football team. So I mean, we could evaluate them after a couple games. That, look, look at them after the Miami the Miami game. Look at them after Jacksonville State. Um, but if it's more of the same, I, it has to be on the players. And when you talk about more of the same with this team coming back from Willie Taggart era to now a new Mike Norvell era, one thing that everyone will always go back to for the Willie Taggart's time and say, penalties were always a problem for this yes. team. Yes. Penalties, penalties, penalties. It was the only thing that people wanted to talk about because it was discipline. In this game, Florida State versus Georgia Tech, Florida State accumulated seven penalties for 50 yards. That was more penalties and more yards than Willie Taggart's first game. And so what, I mean, where's, see, this come, This is why I really raised this question of mm-hmm. is it the players or the coaching? Because something did not change. There's a clear, uh, there's numbers right here that can almost prove that. And so it's a bit damning when you see that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's arguments to be made from both sides. You could say the players have to be more disciplined, or you could say the coaches have the capability to coach those issues out of a player. And right. I don't really know which one is more true, which one carries more weight. But, I mean, with regards to the penalties, it felt like the first half mostly was clean. I know a lot of people were commenting, like, the first quarter, there might have been one penalty against Florida State, and people were saying, oh, we turned a corner. How quickly the narratives can change. Because the second half which is where FSU met its demise, uh, was riddled with penalties, and we just kept getting flashbacks to the 2019, 2018, 2017 seasons that have not been something worth talking about here at Florida State. And also another thing that I brought up for the comparison, just because it feels like almost a a Twitter troll moment when I'm doing this sort of thing, (laughs) the total yards for this game for FSU and Georgia Tech, I believe, Florida State was outgained by Willie Taggart's first year, first game offense than this year's. I believe so. And right. what do you say? I mean, a game where Florida State scores three points and gets whooped up on by Virginia Tech, and in a game where they score 13 points and lose pretty embarrassing fashion to the Yellow Jackets, where, I mean, it's it doesn't feel like they're going anywhere. It's two step forward, one step back. It's whatever you may want to call it. But I don't know. Do you... Do you guys see this team being able to sniff 500 by the end of this season? Considering my preseason prediction of 5-6, and six, I do not see that happening anymore because one of those five wins, I assumed, would be Georgia Tech. So starting the season off on such an uninspiring note, I really don't see how the Seminoles can even approach that 5-6 and six mark. They might get three or four wins, but just looking at the, the difficulty of the schedule... Um, and how, again, we keep hearkening back to how badly FSU got shafted by the ACC's schedule adjustments, subbing out a couple of winnable games for a couple of absolute losses, you would think. Um, I uh, 3-8, and 4-7 and seven sounds about right for me right now. Yeah, Anthony. I kind of agree. Um, I think the 500 mark's going to be pretty difficult to get past, and um, something that I wrote down was that the Miami game is going to be very crucial um, for the, re- the remainder of the season. Um I believe the, Miami's ranked now, correct? Um, they might they, be. They make I, their way into the rankings now? 
I haven't even seen the AP polls. I don't even know what to believe with the AP polls, considering it's, <laughs> they still got some Big 12 or Big 10 teams in there. Yeah, I saw that Ohio right. State dropped from number two to unranked, which is the biggest drop in AP poll history. But, yeah. I mean, wow. th- there's an asterisk for that. Sad. I mean, um, he, Ryan Day has lost the program over there. It's it's <laughs> right. a shame. It's a shame to <laughs> well, see what he's done. Either way, either way, ranked or not, the Miami game is going to be very crucial for the Seminoles. And even the Jacksonville State game, We, I mean, we thought – um, Georgia Tech was going to be a, a easy win, them being, uh, at the time, the worst team in the ACC. So even that game is going to be a very crucial win for the Seminoles. I know it's not out of conference. I mean, it's an out-of-conference matchup. But, yeah, definitely this all-ACC schedule is going to be very difficult for, the, for this new Knowles team uh, to, come, to come by. And at the end of the day, it's, it's just going to come down to the, how efficient they are. Um, in this game on Saturday against Georgia Tech, the, the Seminoles in their last nine drives put up 3.1 yards per play on 62 plays. So it's just a lot of teams in the ACC are way more efficient than the Florida State football team right now. And if they if the if FSU doesn't pick it up, they're going to get beat in the long run. They can have a, they can have a hot start all they want, but when it comes down uh, to crunch time and uh, making making key plays, based on this game, it, do, it doesn't seem like FSU um, is going to continue uh, a really good trend. You know. Yeah, and, and just for clarification, Miami is ranked 17th in the AP poll right. right now. So in two weeks, it will be a good chance for FSU to kind of make some noise against a ranked opponent, albeit, I mean, missing a lot of the Power 5 Conference's mainstays that would normally be there in the top 25. But mm-hmm. still, yeah. And, well, did you guys see the news that came out today about the FSU-Miami game in a couple weeks? I did not. 7.30 ESPN, or oh, 7.30 right. ABC. It's the game of the week. So... Get excited. That game's going to be down in Miami Gardens, not Miami. Miami Gardens, that is. Um, but one thing that Mike Norvell did, he, he said this in his opening press conference. One thing, one promise that he pretty much has followed up through so far in his first game is that the special teams would be a huge focus. And that was one thing I really did think was a big improvement in this game against Georgia Tech. Three blocked kicks. Two of them were field goals. One was an extra point. And then the kick return team, or the kick defend, like the kick defense team, did a phenomenal job, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Their first couple times kicking it down to Georgia Tech, they stopped them inside the 20, which if you can stop anyone inside the 25, that's gravy. So when they were able to make those big stops, I was truly impressed by that. So I think it's kudos to Mike Norvell putting that focus on special teams. But maybe you need to put some focus on some other parts of the team right now, because I think special teams is just A-OK. Yeah, I mean, if, if he can speak these improvements into existence like he did with the special teams, then, geez, talk about the whole team. <laughs> Maybe then we'll, exactly. uh, the team will have a better performance. But, I mean, it, it, the special teams definitely was a shining part. Uh, Marvin Wilson got the two blocked uh, field goals. He's a, a guy that we expected to contribute on the defensive end. We never really talk about him on the special teams unit. But if he can, uh, like, spread his influence to other dudes on that special teams, then we could be singing their praises for the entire season. Right, and that's that's why Marvin Wilson's such a special player. He only had two tackles on the day on Saturday uh, against Georgia Tech, but the fact that he was able to um, stay stay the player that he is on special teams, block two kicks, that's really impressive. And like like he didn't why he didn't jump out on the on the scorecard um, as far as the defense is concerned. Um, I think he did a phenomenal job on special teams, and that's what we need from a, a leader from a, from a captain like Mar- Marvin Wilson. Well, speaking of some of the players, like you mentioned Marvin Wilson, give I want to hear you guys' MVPs for this past week's games. I know uh, it, I don't care if it's a Georgia Tech player or a Florida State player. Who do you think was the best player or the most impactful player in this weekend's game? For me, it has to be Jeff Sims, the true freshman quarterback for the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, former FSU commit. Um, it really wasn't certain until a couple days before the game, or maybe right before the game, uh, who was going to be starting at quarterback for the Jackets, and it did end up being Sims. I expected him to have a rough go of it, partially because I expected FSU's defense to be a little more up to snuff. I mean, holding Georgia Tech to 16 points, that's all right, but I mean, still. Um, And Jeff Sims did look like captain checkdown for a little bit of the game, especially early on. He was just making the easy throws, working his team down the field, but when he needed to, he was effective when he needed to be. He was effective on the offensive end. Uh, in the second half alone, he converted three of five first uh, third downs, four first downs, one of them on his legs, and two of them through the air. So he's showing a lot of promise as a dual threat quarterback. He led Georgia Tech in rushing, and let let's face it, he outplayed James Blackman. He made the plays that he needed to make 
when James Blackman could not. So he's he's my MVP for Saturday's game. I feel like we're we're sensing a pattern with former FSU commits running the ACC, yep. Sam Howell over at, at UNC, Oof. and now Jeff Sims uh, running it over at, at Georgia Tech. Um, kudos, kudos to them. But um, so a player besides Marvin Wilson, we kind of talked about him a little bit. Someone that I wanted to mention on the defensive end was Asante Samuel Jr. We talked about him in the beginning of the show. He has to be uh, my my player of the game. Um, he uh, two interceptions, two key interceptions. Really, um, I, I wish it, I wish I would, like it would have driven the um, the momentum for the FSU offense. But um, there were two key plays. He had four tackles on the day. But another player I wanted to mention, Amari Gaynor. I feel like, watching that game. I feel like this guy was all over the field. Um, I, I feel like he was involved in every play. Um, he had five tackles on the day, five assisted tackles, and he was just a ball hawk. He was all over the field. He had half a sack. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying it. He was all over the field, mm-hmm. and well, that, that was one of the, the key players in this game. And I want to con- kind of combine these two things, the Jeff Sims and the Gainer, uh, Marvin, and kind of the defensive side of this all, to kind of bring up the question, did – Georgia Tech already put out the playbook on how to get around FSU's defense because they got the ball out quick. They didn't let the defensive FSU's defensive line get to them uh, very fast, and they prevented sacks. I mean, Florida State only had one sack on the day, yep. and it was it was that half sack that you mentioned from Amari Gaynor. The other half of that was Raymond Woody the third. So it's tough when you don't see Robert Cooper, Corey Durden, Marvin Wilson, Janarius Robin, Ro- uh, Robinson. Joshua Kando getting a sack. So is the playbook already out on FSU's defense? I mean, if the playbook is as simple as do better in pass protection, then sure, because Georgia Tech did an incredible job of that, like you mentioned, only surrendered one sack to FSU's defense. So for the programs with strong offensive lines, absolutely. It's going to be a tough matchup for Florida State, but I think that's really where the balance is going to swing. Yeah, and I think Georgia Tech just had a chip on their shoulder. They, they knew who they were going to play against. As far as the defensive line was concerned, coming into this game, and they're um, they're like everyone's everyone's doubting us. Everyone thinks we're the worst team in the ACC. Let's show Florida State what we're made of. Let's let's show uh, let's give people a different opinion about us. And I think they just uh, stopped Florida State perfectly. Well, you would have thought Florida State would be the team to come in with a chip on their shoulder, considering 2016. And I know none of these guys were on that roster in 2016. Mm-hmm. It's I, none of us. I think all of us were in high school in 2016. So. That puts it in a little bit of perspective on how long ago that was. But Florida State, their last time they played against the Yellow Jackets, it was a heartbreaker because that team was going to be the number was one or two around that time. And that block kick returned to win the game was a dagger. And that really hurt that program. And some things started to go down from there. But What a time to be alive. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to listen to a little bit more about that season, uh, Brett Rutherford, myself, and Ryan Kelly did a podcast about that 2016 season. That was a great little episode that we did during the summer when we were in quarantine. So that was a fun one. But still, your Georgia Tech, you said they came in with a chip on their shoulder. I think they were fa- Florida State was favored by nearly two touchdowns. It was about 12 and a half, 13 points. And... They didn't play like that, and it's crazy to see Florida State get outplayed in this game in almost every aspect. And I don't know where I don't know necessarily where this team goes, whether it be a quarterback change or something. But I don't know. We can talk about quarterback change possibly because I don't know if it can happen really. But if Norvell was looking to hand over the keys to this car to anyone in that locker room other than James Blackman, is there an option? First of all, or is it just going to stay? Is it going to maybe float hands for the next couple of days? If I had to put my money somewhere, it would be on Blackman staying the quarterback for the foreseeable future. But I mean, if you have to give the keys to somebody else right now, it has to be Tate Rodemaker, one of the true freshmen on this roster, because we've seen Jordan Travis in action, limited action, last year and on Saturday. He threw one pass on Saturday that went incomplete, uh, usually used as sort of a running quarterback out of the backfield. So he is not going to be your long-term solution for a passing quarterback. And then with Chubba, Chubba Purdy hurt, I mean, it's hard to tell which one Mike Norvell favors, which one the coaching staff as a whole favors, because they've both gotten heaps of praise throughout camp. But, I mean, with Chubba being injured right now, he has an injury to his shoulder. Um, I don't think that Mike Norvell would want to rush him back into the action uh, if a quarterback change were to be made and just kind of throw him into the fire, risk re-injuring that shoulder. So... 
My bet is that it stays James Blackman for the future, but I would not be surprised to see Tate Rodemaker get some action soon. Um, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm, I won't go too much into it because a lot of the points I, I would make are pretty similar to Austin's. But yeah, Jordan Travis, I feel like he was a, he was very efficient as a runner. Oh yeah. Um, on Saturday, um, but as far as a passing option, I wouldn't really consider him um a, like a top option. I wouldn't hand him the keys. Um, no matter how uh, James Bla- James Blackman is playing at the time, um, but I agree. I do think that Blackman's gonna he's gonna be the guy uh, throughout the season. Um, maybe later on, if, if it's really like we really or, like Florida State football really has no other option, I feel like they would go uh, Tate Rodemaker. But I I feel like they're gonna give Blackman the keys as long as they can ride him out. Well, guys, I'm pretty sure uh, former host of Tomahawk Talk, Brett Rutherford, I'm pre- he's on the side of Blackman here. He's going to have to agree with you guys. They'll stay in his hands. His defense is that uh, he's only he's on his fourth offensive coordinator in four years. The line was not good. The receivers did not help him out. And this was his first career game without Cam Akers. That's a big key right there. He's not great, and he's made some mistakes, but he's the best that Florida State has right now. And I think that's a very good point, Brett. Thank you mm-hmm. for tweeting at us right there. We really appreciate that. And the biggest aspect that he tweeted right there is James Blackman did not have Cam Akers to rely on. Yep. Because can anyone tell me who the leading rusher was for Florida State this weekend? I'm pretty sure it was James Blackman. Anthony, do you have a guess? I, I thought it was Jordan Travis. Jordan Travis is correct. Okay. Six carries for 39 yards. One heck of an, after, an, an evening for the man. Yeah. So... When you don't have that rock or we don't have that one solid player you can lean on and get it to every single down or every other down whenever you need him, it kills you. And it obviously did there because for some reason, uh, Josh Corbin couldn't really find his stride. He did well in the backfield catching the ball. I really did like what he did there. He had eight receptions for 55 yards, but he just wasn't able to get it moving. And that's obviously another reference to Brett's tweet where the offensive line just wasn't there either. So when you have that kind of combination going against Blackman, it's tough to win ball games, And that's why, once again, I really do believe it's the players in this one rather than the coaching. And, like, and that's why I, I, I was on the side when Willie Taggart was fired that I think they should have at least ha- let him have the end of the year. Okay. Maybe another year because mm-hmm. it's the same thing when you uh, were watching Mark Rick down in Miami. Just give him some time. Let him get a full recruiting cycle. Like, let me get a four, two, three to four years in so he can flush out the ones that maybe aren't right for the system and get in the ones that are. And you start to see some of that come through for the U later on when they started to play some really good football. But it's just not going to be instantaneous for Florida State. And that's what we were saying back when Willie Taggart first came here. This is something that's going to take time. And regardless of if Florida State has the better athletes, Mentally, they might not be prepared and ready for this kind of this area of the game that they're at right now because it's difficult. Everyone still wants to come at Florida State because Florida State's still a big name. Florida State's still a national name. They just don't play up to that anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really sad to see, honestly, because a couple of years ago, Florida State was like on on almost Alabama tiers of every single team in college football wanting to take them down. They were the bad guys, the heel of college football. And now they're just the laughing stock of college football, honestly. Like you see screenshots of them on the out of out of context college football Twitter all the time. Like uh, whoever was the meme a couple years ago reading a book in the stands uh, while while Florida State was busy getting blown out. Or uh, so, there's so many surrender cobras this weekend. Exactly. Yeah. There was the, way the too surrender many surrender cobras are what I was gonna get at too. But I mean, it's just just hearkening back to to Brett's point. The impact that Cam Makers had on James Blackman cannot be overstated. He was one of the best safety blankets probably in the game for as long as he was here. Um, he was super good in spite of the offensive line, not because of it. So that's why he was selected as high as he was in the NFL draft, a lot higher than a lot of us would have expected, at least I expected. So, I mean, I, I had on the dock that uh, the running back, the running game rather, is the biggest area that Florida State needs to improve in before the Miami game. Because you cannot have Ja'Shawn Corbin and, uh, let me see here, Ja'Shawn Corbin and LaDamian Webb uh, combining for 57 yards on 19 carries. That's three carries a clip. That is not going to win you ball games, mm-hmm. especially against a team that averaged, uh, gave up about 
218-ish yards a game last year on the ground. So not a great showing from them, but I, I feel like they can turn it up as the season goes on. And you mentioned Florida State has kind of become almost a laughing stock of college football and around the nation. And in Eric McLean from the ACC Network, he put out his ACC power rankings this afternoon. And I know Andrea Addison also put out her power rankings too. Both of these guys, both of these reporters had Florida State dead last, 15th in their power rankings. Does Florida State belong at 15? I would say no, but I can't really blame them for putting Florida State there because, I mean, we've been saying for the past half hour, it was an absolute dreadful performance from Florida State against a team they were expected to not blow out, but win comfortably against, especially in the debut for new head coach Mike Norvell. I can definitely see how a lot of people would think that Florida State's not going to be able to turn this around, but I mean, just looking at some of the teams at the bottom of this ranking, you see the NC State Wolfpack, Wake Forest, Syracuse. I mean, two of those teams were taken off of Florida State's schedule. So, I mean, in a normal season, FSU could have a chance to rebound against one of those two. But I would give them a fighting chance over NC State later in the year, honestly. I, I just, for now, it's it's halfway warranted, but I don't think 15 is where Florida State belongs. Yeah, and I mean, when you lose to the worst team in the ACC, um, does that make you the worst team in the ACC? And that's kind of the question that you you see answered in these ACC power rankings um, seeing Florida State last. But, yeah, I do I do agree that the NC State matchup in, uh, later on in the season is going to be a, a big determining factor of where FSU really stands in the, in the ACC power rankings. Um, but we're just going to have to wait and see as the season go- comes along. We'll see how the, the Miami game goes. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's just a waiting game with FSU. Exactly. And for the I think a little message for Florida State fans around the nation is, I think Aaron Rodgers said it, uh, said it best a while ago, it's a five little. It's a little five-letter word out there, and it's R E L A X. Relax. So I think that's all Florida State fans really need to do right now. It's game one of a new era. Just relax. We got a lot of time to go. A lot of we got miles to go. Let's put it that way. But I think that's all we got for this first half of Tomahawk Talk. Thank you, Anthony, for hopping on and talking to us. Really appreciate that. Anytime. Uh, can, I, can I say one more thing before I head it. out? Yep. Um. The FSU coaching job, it, it, it can't constantly be a revolving door. Like we need uh, FSU needs to give Mike Norvell more time. The first game wasn't very good, but you can't keep hiring a coach every two years because one coaches aren't going to want to come into a, a job that they they might feel that they're unsafe if they're not winning right away. So FSU fans and the FSU boosters, they just need to give Mike Norvell a chance to do his thing, recruit recruit, recruit, and hopefully in the next two or three years, uh, FSU football can be back in the top 25 and hopefully making a name for themselves in the ACC. But, that, yeah, that's all I have to say. All right, that's well said, Anthony. Thank you very much for hopping on this half hour. We're going to send you guys the break. You are listening to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.
All right, and we are back here live on Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee 89.7 FM, the voice of Florida State. And let's welcome on now our new, one of our new anchors around uh, the station here, Jacob Varga. I mean, how are you doing, man? How's your first couple weeks at, in Tallahassee been? I'm doing really well, actually. First couple weeks, you know, it's been pretty rainy around here, but I have absolutely no complaints except for what I've seen on the football field. <laughs> I think, yeah, a lot of people got some complaints. I think you, you'll you file those straight to the uh, more athletic center. I think they will be taking those there. <laughs> so, yeah, if you want that, go over there for that. But right now, right here, we're going to be talking some NFL football, and we had a big, big week of NFL action had, coming at us. And first off, let's I'm gonna, we're going to play a little new game that I got, and it's called Rational Irrational. I'm going to put out five statements, and I want you guys to tell me why or why not my statement that I just made is rational or irrational. So let's kick it off right with the first one, and I like this one. This one, this one might be my favorite one. This is why I put it at number one, and it is Tom Brady is a system quarterback. Austin, I'll let you have the first go. I mean, this question is making me wonder if my fellow co-host is... Uh... Gary Putnick or Sports Talk Joey on Twitter because that's one of his biggest uh, biggest things that he's known for. But Tom Brady is absolutely not a system quarterback. There were going to be growing pains uh, in his first game or first few games with the Buccaneers because he spent 20 years in one system with uh, with players that he has well not 20 years with the same players but 20 years playing in one system and then he moves to the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers playing with entirely new players outside of Gronk, who's already been out of the game for a year, uh, playing against probably the toughest team on his schedule in the toughest venue on his schedule. It's a it's a road game for the Bucks. They have to travel there. There's no fans in attendance, but still, uh, I don't know if crowd noise was piped into the Superdome or not, but that could have been a factor. Um, Brady looked rusty. Obviously, there's no two ways around it, but I trust that he and the Buccaneers, uh, under the, the coaching of Bruce Arians, are going to be able to live up to their preseason expectations and make this not be the game that defines them. Jacob, you're you're a you're a Patriot you're a Patriots fan. So you I assume are going to be more on the Tom Brady is not a system quarterback side of things. Or I, actually you might be because I mean, now you, that he's out of New England, yeah, he's you free could, to say whatever he wants. Yeah, you might be a Belichick stand, so I don't know. Let's hear it from <laughs> you now. <laughs> yeah, definitely uh, I would agree that Tom Brady is a very, very not such a system quarterback. Come on, guys. I mean, like Austin said, 20 years in the same uh, same system under the same head coach. Bound to be some growing pains, especially with the modified training camp that they had this year due to COVID-19. There's no way that you could expect any quarterback of 20 years, 43 years old, to just be able to perfectly transition, have a brand new set of guys, and just really go in there and be the same Tom Brady that we've seen in New England. Yeah, those are fair points, and I'll I'll give you guys some other points to kind of go along with your argument. He, the, they had no rushing game. I mean, Ronald Jones was their leading rusher at sixty-six yards, and he almost felt like Tom Brady almost felt like he was uh, James Blackman out there with the lack of rushing. <laughs> oh, brother, I mean, it's a fair comparison, is it not? I mean, the leading rusher for Florida State had about sixty-some yards too, so I think it's a bit fair. So, Tom Brady, I mean, he just did not look. He didn't impress me in his first game in Tampa Bay. And I know, I know, I know, no preseason, COVID, yes, all that stuff. But he is, everyone will run around and say he is the best quarterback to ever play the game. If you're the best ever, prove it. And he did not prove it game one for me. I'm, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it one bit. <laughs> so I think we can, do you guys have any other closing thoughts on Mr. Brady? Nothing really. I've said my piece. Okay. And, and he will show you that you're wrong as, as the weeks go on. I think I have something to add. Yeah. Uh, as well as not having a running sack, Tom Brady was also sacked three times mm-hmm. this past Sunday. Uh, the offensive line just isn't there compared to the Pro Bowl caliber line that he had in New England. Obviously, the mobility is not much of a factor with him as well. So when you look at Tom Brady playing in Tampa, one of the concerns going into the season was, will this offensive line be able to hold that pocket for him? And last week, it just did not do that. And all of these points that we're all making together combine for why I don't believe also Tom Brady's going to succeed in Tampa and why I'm not buying into the Tampa Bay Buccaneers hype. Because I know that they do have great receivers. I'll give them that. Their receiving group, Godwin, Evans, Gronk's pretty good, O.J. Howard. I mean, they got a laundry list of great receivers, but just all in all, this team is just 
okay. I think it's a good team. It's I, They're going to be hanging a little bit over 500, I would hope, mm-hmm. this year with the talent that they have, but I don't think they're going to be anything special. So we can go on to statement number two now, and rational, irrational. It sounds like uh, the first one lost two to one, I'd call it that, because I'm calling my I'm calling that first statement rational. Contrarian. Yes. So the second uh, statement here, the car the Arizona Cardinals are going to finish as a top two team in the NFC West. Now, to preface this for people that may have not watched the Cardinals yesterday, they beat the reigning NFC champions, San Francisco 49ers, 24 to 20 in San Francisco yesterday, also in front of no fans, like most uh, most stadiums were this past week. Austin, you get the floor first. I am going to have to go out on a limb and say this one is not irrational. It is rational because, I mean, the NFC West is an absolute bloodbath, or at least it's shaping up to be, because the Rams have not finished under 9-7 and seven under uh, Sean McVay. The Seahawks, Russell Wilson is always going to be able to keep you in games, as bad as their defense may be. This is arguably the worst defense under Pete Carroll, which also adds fuel to the Cardinals could be top two fire. Uh, the Niners are uh, pretty much a known quantity. I mean, they, they play good defense. They have George Kittle uh, as a safety net for Jimmy Garoppolo, who admittedly is not the most talented quarterback. He's good. He's not great. So, I mean, the Cardinals could absolutely take advantage of this because Kyler Murray, a lot of people think he's going to make that year two leap that a lot of guys have made in the past, Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson specifically. He had a great game yesterday, and adding DeAndre Hopkins does incredible. It it does leaps and bounds for his potential as a starter here. And not here, but over there in Arizona, other side of the country. But, I mean, I I genuinely, I, I did my season predictions like a day or two before the season started, and I did not have a single NFC West team finishing under 500. I think I had the Cardinals and Rams at 8-8, eight and eight, but they could both easily eclipse that number. That I would not have guessed you had a sing, You wouldn't have a single NFC West team finishing under five. You said under 500. Yes, I had two of them at 8-8. Eight and eight. Wow, okay, that's, an, that's interesting. I would not have guessed that. Jacob, what are your thoughts on the Cardinals, and will they be a top-two team in this division when it's all said and done? I'm definitely going with uh, a rational here. Well, the Cardinals are a great, great improvement story, but at the end of the day, when your quarterback's your leading Russia, it doesn't bode well for your team's case unless you are the Baltimore Ravens. They just do not have the type of team that Baltimore has to run a system like that. And if you see Kyle Murray running around 13, 14, 15 times a game on scrambles, it's just not going to be a good look. It was a good look this week against San Francisco, but I just wonder about the sustainability. And then, on top of that, their defense, one of the worst-ranked defenses last year, can't count one game against San Francisco and say, well, now they're an elite unit who's going to transform, just transcend under Vance Joseph. It's just we're yet to see what's going to happen with them. And I really, really am airing on the side of caution against thinking against the defending NFC champions, the Seahawks with Russell Wilson and Jamal Adams, and the Rams who beat the Cowboys this week as well. So it's very hard for me to say that the Cardinals are better than two of those three teams. I mean, these next couple of games for the Cardinals are looking pretty good right now. They play the Washington football team week two in Arizona, and then they play the Detroit Lions also in Arizona week three. And then they play the Panthers week four and then the Jets week five. So, I mean, these first five games are very winnable for this team. And you mentioned their running game and how it's not up to snuff. Kenyon Drake, from a Miami Dolphin perspective, (laughs) he's a pretty darn good running back. And I know he proved it a lot at the end of that last season there. So I think they really do have some options to go to when it comes to the running game. It may have just been against the Niners, a a bunch of quarterback sneaks and keepers was more favorable and more uh, profitable, and it seemed to be because, I mean, he did have 91 yards, and he did have, I, I think, I believe, one rushing touchdown. So not too bad of a day for Kyler Murray as a whole. I think 230 on passing yards and 91 rushing-wise. So solid day. I'm going to ha- I based on what I saw after that first game, there is a legitimate chance the Cardinals can finish top two, but... I'm going to go on irrational because I think they're going to be just below and they're going to be just at the third spot. So just barely missing that second, that top two mark, but it's going to be close, I think. So let's go on to number three now. This one, I, I think this is a good one too. The Carson Wentz era in Philadelphia needs to end. Jacob, let's start with you this time. 
I'm going to have to say irrational. Like you're looking at a quarterback who, yes, is dealing with a lot of injury problems, but the, the injury bug just bites Philly all over the field. It's not just him. It's his receiving core. Look at last year, even this year in training camp. Jalen Rager, their number or first-round draft pick, hurt in training camp. You're not setting Carson Wentz up to succeed. He was sacked seven times against Washington. The football team with no name, football <laughs> team projected to go 3-13, and 13, sacked seven times. I don't believe it's all Carson Wentz's problem. I don't believe it's all his fault, and I don't think his time in Philly should come to an end. Well, the Washington football team, they do have a pretty darn good defensive line, and that's something they've built up through the years via draft, and that's why I think they were able to really put that good pressure on Wentz, and Wentz looked good. The first half, He looked. I think he was like 170 yards, two touchdowns. They had a nice comfy lead over the football team for a bit, and then everything, the walls came crashing down. Two picks came around. They couldn't run the ball too hot either. I mean, their top rusher, we speak about just no rushing, like help from running backs this week in football, whether it be Florida State, Tom Brady and the Buccaneers, Philadelphia. I mean, they may have had the worst draw out of all of them. Boston Scott was the leading rusher for the Eagles with 35 yards. Yeah. Uh, nine carries and then Corey Clement was number two with 19 yards on six carries so just a very poor day overall rushing wise for the Eagles but when it comes to Carson Wentz he does have a pretty good quarterback right behind him now and I know he's now he's used to having a good quarterback or a serviceable one at least in the wings right now and it's uh, Jalen Hurts so we know what he's capable of seeing him at Alabama and Oklahoma but I think this the Carson Wentz era might it might be on one of its last legs. I don't know, Austin. I, I don't really buy into that. <laughs> and to the to the Jalen Hurts point specifically, I don't think he's quite ready yet because he was on the inactive list for the Eagles in this game. So it would take a miracle and a half, or really a catastrophe and a half, for him to see real game action this year or really anytime soon. I would say, but I mean, all the points that y'all have been making about the Philly offensive line not being what it used to be and Washington's defensive line just getting better and better over the years, I'm going to echo those same sentiments because you've got guys like Ryan Kerrigan that have been there for a while mixing in with new additions like Chase Young. Those two combined for three and a half sacks yesterday. So, I mean, it's if they're this potent in game one against a team that many people pick to win their division, then it could pay dividends down the line, especially for a team that not many people thought would go far. But, I mean, for Carson Wentz in particular... He's suffering from that offensive line not being up to snuff, like we said. Um, that's when you throw two interceptions, when you get sacked, I think it was like three or four times this game. A lot of that is on the offensive line and not providing good pass protection. So it, it's just, it's tough for him right now. And I don't think that it's entirely his fault. And you spoke about kind of the, the volatility of the NFC East there because the Eagles were picked to win the division. I don't believe there's been a NFC East repeat division champ since the mid-2000s. I think 2008's the number that we're looking for. Somebody could maybe fact-check us on that one. But every year, it's a rotating cast of characters in that division. And we're seeing it right now. The Washington football team is leading the division right now. one and 0 The New York football giants, I believe, have a 3-0 lead right now on the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Cowboys lost last night in due to some questionable calls yeah. either by McCarthy and both the ref, and the refs as well. And then the Eagles lose in a stinker, really, in Washington. So that game, the, that division is going to be one to watch, and that one's always probably the most exciting one to follow up on all season long. So keep your eye on that. But I think we got our question number four here for the uh, NFL irrational or rational game that we got going here. So the Colts, we're going to throw it on over to them in Indianapolis. They should have just stuck with Jacoby Brissett and not gone to Phil. I don't agree with that so much as I agree with uh, the point that they could have gone after other free agents here because Philip Rivers, I mean, he's he's been a potent pastor, a potent passer, maybe a pastor too on, on the side, but a potent passer for a lot of his career. Uh, did not really impress that much with the Chargers last year. He was kind of like a throw it deep and pray it doesn't get inter- get intercepted kind of guy. But, um, I, I mean, there's going to be first-game jitters like we talked about with Tom Brady. Uh, I, I don't really think he's washed yet uh, off this one game alone. Uh, the, the Indianapolis offensive line is a lot better than anything he's had in San Diego, Los Angeles. Uh, I think I said San Diego before, but uh, with the Chargers, 
Uh, so that provides a lot of hope for him. Marlon Mack going down early in the first uh, first quarter, I believe, was not that great. So uh, not a lot to look forward to in the running back department there until he gets back. And I believe it could have been an Achilles. Is that what was being reported, right? I believe so. For Marlon Mack. But That's... they do have Jonathan Taylor. True, true. I, Jonathan Taylor is a nice guy to have there. Yeah. Super good prospect out of Wisconsin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I, I would have rather them gone for, say, a Cam Newton, uh, like it's written here in the doc. But, I mean, Philip Rivers, he could be a one-year solution. Who knows? Jacob, what do you got? Yeah, let's talk about, the uh, you know, keeping with the theme of the awful running games, helping our man Philip Rivers out. Eagles running back, they got to the 30s. Colts running back, Nylam Hines, their top rusher, 28 yards. Did not crack the 30 mark. I mean, this he got had me. had no help on the ground. He got me he plenty of fantasy day, points, so I'm happy there. in the traffic through picks, and they just lost out to a Jaguars team that just looked like they wanted it more. Uh, I disagree with the fact that they should have stuck with Jacoby Brissett. Other than the couple of mistakes Philip Rivers, he took the two picks away. He threw 75% completion for 360 yards and a touchdown, and they probably win the game. So I think if you can just eliminate those mistakes, get back to basics, get back to really connecting with this new system, I think the Colts will be okay. My only problem with Phil, I like Phil as a quarterback. He just isn't great in the fourth quarter. No. That's a nice way. I guess it isn't great is a nice way of putting it for his career. I think he's only had about 37. I got it right up in front of me. He's got 27 fourth quarter comebacks wow. in his career. since, And he's been playing in the league since 2006. Mm-hmm. So that's been quite a long time to, uh, to build up that number. And he really hasn't. So... I think we got our last one here now for the rational, irrational. I don't know if we'll bring this game back. It's pretty good. I think it's fun right now. But our last one that we got, it's a four-horse race for the MVP right now in the NFL. Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Pat Mahomes, and Lamar Jackson. And if you want, I can throw in Gardner Minshew if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, to, uh, to your question about if we can bring this back, if it'll be interesting, I think it's great for week one because that is the absolute best time to overreact. Maybe bring it back around like midseason or so when we've got half a slate of games to look at. But for this question in particular, absolutely an overreaction, keeping with the trend here of, I believe, four out of these five being an overreaction. Um, week one stats oftentimes do not spell uh, do not spell out what the rest of the season is going to look like because... I mean, just a personal anecdote, my Falcons, a couple years ago, 2015, uh, first year with Dan Quinn at the helm, they started 5-0, and and they looked impressive in a lot of those games, and then they ended up 8-8. Eight and eight. So um, early season success does not usually, or not does not always translate to a season of dominance. Uh, it, it could for a lot of these players. I mean, you look at Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, not so much Gardner Minshew. That's not really part of his reputation yet, but I mean... These are dudes you expect to be in the MVP conversation, but it's entirely possible that one or two or all of them fall off a cliff. I don't think that's likely, but there's definitely going to be candidates that make this list and get dropped from this list as the season goes on. Jacob? Yeah, and I, and I agree. Uh, if you look at definitely an overreaction to crown an MVP after one week, but if you want a fast, fast flashback even two, three days before any games were played, these would have been the four players we would have been talking about yeah. for MVP regardless. And, you know, they came out and they did exactly what we thought they were going to do in week one. All of them put up crazy numbers, big stats, got the wins that they needed, and did exactly what we thought they would all do. So I don't think it'd be possible to pick a fair MVP out of these four right now. So definitely uh, not a big, big fan of having to make at a decision on a week one MVP. Well, I'm not I'm not saying you have to make a decision. I'm just saying right now the MVP is going to be, it's a four-horse race. It's these guys. It's these four guys, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Pat Mahomes, and Lamar Jackson. I really, and I honestly, I do believe that right now. This is, I, this, all these uh, questions or these statements that I wrote out are pretty much my dumb football thoughts going through yeah. my brain. And I've just written <laughs> them tell. down and it's a disembodied voice yelling it at you now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, if that's what you're going for, like, if you're talking about what could be true right now, then absolutely, yeah, these dudes are the top four, top five, if you throw Minshew in there uh, in consideration for MVP. But like you said, stupid football thoughts. I'm mm-hmm. just going to echo that. Exactly. So uh, let's let's get off the football train right now. We've done a lot of football this show. 
we got to talk a little bit about the NBA playoffs because things are getting interesting now. The I, We already have an Eastern Conference final set, but before that, did you guys even know the Clippers and Nuggets were playing a game seven tomorrow night? Because it really snuck up on me. It's I, even, I followed the series very casually. I'll be honest with yeah. you. I'm not... I'm not dialed into the Clippers and Nuggets every single night, but they're in Game 7. It is tomorrow night, I believe 9 p.m., right after the Miami Heat-Boston Celtics game. What are your guys' thoughts on this series as a whole, and where do you see it going from here? I mean, it's it's a really a tale of two, two series inside of the same series, uh, just like we saw with the Nuggets in their series against the Utah Jazz. After games two, three, four, you thought the Jazz were just going to walk away with it, and then the Nuggets come fighting back. Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray just do their thing. Excuse me. Um, and they just will the Nuggets into the conference semifinals. And we could be seeing the same thing here against the Clippers because in game six, they shot absolutely terribly from the field. I think it was like 26.3%. Uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George both had good nights, uh, 26 and 23, 26 and 33 points, if I remember correctly. Um, but... Patrick Beverly getting ejected, I believe, 17 minutes into the game is not ideal. He's probably the third or fourth most important player on this team. Uh, so you definitely need him around. Can't be having that in Game 7, do-or-die scenario. Um, I, It's tough. I trust the Clippers to make the necessary adjustments, even after losing two games in a row pretty much the exact same way. They had double-digit leads at the half and then proceeded to blow those and let the Nuggets back into the game, back into the series. I I don't know. Because I mean and, and and even on top of that, like Nikola Jokic said it perfectly yesterday after the game. He said all the pressure is on the Clippers because they're favorites they're the favorites in the series. Depending on who you ask, they're the favorites to win the title, maybe even. So if they lose one game, they're out. All the pressure is on them. Oh yeah, the Clippers should the Clippers should have been if we're all saying our dumb basketball thoughts here the Clippers should have been in the Western Conference final two games ago oh yeah if if we're thinking about this this series on paper but it's not going their way right now and it's going to get interesting it's I I'm excited for this game seven because we're gonna have two really good games on tomorrow night mm-hmm. Jacob how do you what are your thoughts right now on this series I really 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 want to make the flash pick and go with the nuggets Ooh. and say look okay. Jamal Murray, Jokic, all they know are Game 7s. Every single playoff series they have played in their whole careers, Game 7. They're 2-1 and one in those games. I want to pick them. I want to say they're going to go 3-1. and one. But last year, when I picked the 76ers to win Game 7, I learned my lesson. You do not pick against Kawhi Leonard in Game <laughs> 7 of an NBA basketball playoff series. So there's no way the Clippers lose this game. I, I take Clippers double digits. Clippers by a million. Wow. Clippers don't lose a... here. Wow. There's, there's too much riding on this game for Kawhi, for PG-13, for Doc Rivers even. They need this win, and they will get this win for sure. I mean, uh, you could you could really say the same thing about the Nuggets because, like, last year after they lost in the conference semifinals, people were saying, oh, they're a young team. They have time. They can uh, make a deep playoff run next year. And if they lose this game seven against the Clippers, it's going to be a lot of the same sentiments being shared. They're a young team. They have time. They can run it back next year. So, I I mean, there's some pressure on them, obviously. Yeah, but they're arguably going up against the better team right now. They are not the better team in this series. I think everyone can agree on that, on paper at least. But the, I, I don't think the window's closing just yet on the Nuggets. They oh, got a lot of time not. to go. And I'd say the window's probably closing faster yeah. on the Clippers than it is the Nuggets. So I don't think there's any rush to try and get into that Western Conference Finals. Obviously, you want to be there. You need to be there right now, right then and there. But it's not over just yet with this one loss in this Game 7. I know they play pretty well in Game 7, so it's going to be a fun game. But, Jacob, you wrote this question down on the sheet before the show. You said, who has a better chance in the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers? Is it going to be the Clippers or the Nuggets? Jacob, we'll go to you on this one. Yeah, I just think the Clippers match up a lot better. Uh, you know, despite Jokic and Murray completely transforming their games for the playoffs, you can't deny that the Clippers just match up better with what the Lakers want to do offensively. Lakers want to battle inside. They want to get LeBron involved. They want to get AD involved. And they're trying to spread the ball to the three-point line by dragging those defenders in to guard LeBron and AD. I just think the Clippers can stay in front of them a lot better than the Nuggets can. So they can match pace for pace, Kawhi's. You know, going to be able to get your 25, 30 a game on the offensive end and 
feel it really matched LeBron in that series compared to who would match LeBron on the Nuggets. They, they just don't have that guy to do that. And to beat LeBron, any LeBron team, you need someone to match him. For the Warriors, it was KD. For the Spurs, it was Kawhi Leonard. And guess who's going to be on the Clippers in the Western Conference Finals in a couple of days? Kawhi Leonard. Very well said, Jacob. Yeah, I mean, I would have to go with Jacob here as well because you've seen it two out of four times that these teams have played, the Clippers and the Lakers, uh, in this season. The Clippers have just... Kawhi has done a great job of not shutting LeBron down, but not neutralizing him, I'd say. Um, and then in the most recent game, the, their matchup in the bubble to open the season, the Clippers were missing, like, three of their most important players. So a, a little bit ridiculous to say that that's any sort of suggestion that the Lakers could could do well in this series. Um, it hurts to say as a LeBron fan, but I, I just believe that the Clippers match up better against the Lakers than really even any team in the playoffs. Yeah, it's it's going to be a tough one. Ultimately, it would have to be the Lakers winning this series, but yeah, Clippers probably match up the best. Uh, before we go, quick predictions, Heat, Celtics, Eastern Conference Finals. I'm going to go first, Heat in six. Got to go with my boys, them Dade County boys, them Dade County goons, as Kendrick Perkins says. Austin? You stole my pick. I was going to say Heat in six as well. Get on the train. Get on the bandwagon. Join me. Get back here. I think the Celtics are going to try and work Gordon Hayward back into the rotation, even though they have a lot of guys producing right now, and he's just not going to be able to find his spot. Jacob? Yeah. um, I'm going to have to disagree with both of you guys. I think the Celtics, as my dark horse Eastern Conference champion at the beginning of the season, I would not be fair to them if I backed down it now. I'm going to go Celtics. In five oh games, they're wow, gentlemen, they're going to find the solution. They're going to find what beats the Heat. They're going to play them on ice. Celtics in five. Ha ha ha! They're not playing in the TD Garden this time, so there will be no ice. So good luck finding that anywhere in Florida. But that's all I think we got for our show. Great job, guys. Loved having you on, Jacob. Did a great job for your first time on air. But uh, I think that's all we got for today for Austin, for myself, for Austin, for Jacob, for Anthony, for Bell, for Sebastian. Thank you for listening to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee 89.7 FM. That's all we got for tonight's show. We'll see you next Monday at 7 p.m. That's all. See you later.